You're listening to HSBC Talks Business. Learn how businesses like yours are leveraging a wide range of banking solutions to maximize their success and how HSBC is helping them. Thank you for listening. Financing Future Cities, a podcast series created by HSBC to examine the complex and evolving role of urban hubs through the lens of banking and finance. With more than half the world's population living in cities, and this number only expected to grow, urban hubs are increasingly the global drivers of prosperity, serving as models for sustainability and incubators of innovation. Join us now as we look to the future of sustainable urbanization and learn about the power and potential of future cities. Hello and welcome to today's episode where we're going to explore global urbanization and sustainable finance. Thanks for tuning in. My name is Greg Clark. I'm Group Advisor for Future Cities and New Industries at HSBC. And today I'll be talking with Dr. Jana Remes from McKinsey Global Institute and HSBC's Head of ESG Solutions and Sustainable Finance for EMEA, Farnham Bidgoli. To briefly introduce our guest speakers today, Dr. Jana Remes is an economist and a partner at McKinsey Global Institute, McKinsey's business and economics research arm. Since 2003, she's led MGI's research on competitiveness, growth, health, and urbanization. She leads MGI's Urban World Research Series that includes sizing the impact of smart city solutions on citizens' quality of life, mapping of the economic power of cities, identifying global consumer groups shaping global demand, and mapping of the global company landscape. Farnham Bidgoli is HSBC's head of ESG solutions for ELEA, where she advises HSBC's capital market clients across all sectors on sustainable finance and ESG considerations. She also sits on HSBC's Green Bond and Loan Committee and acts as HSBC's representative to the ICMA Green Bond Principles Executive Committee, where she co-chairs the Climate Transition Finance Working Group, and she co-leads work on the Just Transition. She has over 10 years' experience working with investors, issuers, and other stakeholders on the integration of environmental and social factors into investment decisions, including the development of investment strategies for some of the world's largest asset owners. Thank you both for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Greg, it's great to be here. Great. Well, let's get started. The pandemic has been a catalyst for changes in the flows of our cities. We're witnessing a shift away from the established focus for cities to simply serve commuters or to host large corporates or even to serve mass consumption. And cities are increasingly reinventing themselves to be more livable and more sustainable places. The shift is being driven by the trends of digitization and decarbonization, both of which have been accelerated by the pandemic. So, Jana, if I may start with you, what is the most recent data telling us 
about how the urbanization process is now playing out worldwide? Urbanization as a broad phenomenon has been one of the most consistent trends that, of course, continues its course across the globe. But what the pandemic has changed is the pattern of urbanization. The bright lights of leading cities got dimmer with the lockdown policies and social distancing. And as the pandemic prolonged and people got used to working, eating, exercising, socializing, doing almost everything in their homes, many folks who can work from a distance were attracted to the more affordable, often smaller cities that offered more living space for the same money. This is very likely to leave a lasting mark on the shape of urbanization across regions with shifts in both population growth rates in between big and small cities, as well as relative real estate prices between urban city centers. And that means both the office space as well as commercial food, exercise and other personal services that used to serve large commute populations. And on the other hand, the smaller cities where we are likely to see and are already seeing some growth in the more commercial activity, meeting the demand for the growing populations. But these are not going to be even across the different regions. The U.S. has traditionally had a more mobile workforce. And already uh, during the pandemic, we have seen more temporary and even permanent moves. We'll see some of that in Europe, but probably less in Asia, where the pandemic experience has been quite different. Jana, this is fascinating. So I think you've said three things. One, global urbanization is going to continue, but it will take a new pattern. I'm sure we'll come back to that. Secondly, there seem to be the biggest negative changes in the city centers of the large cities, but there are positive changes as you see them in smaller cities and large towns. And thirdly, in the regions of the world, the process of adjustment or the degree of change is going to vary because in each of those regions, there's a different pattern of population mobility or technology adoption. Is that right, Jana? Absolutely right. Those are the three trends. Great. So if we then think about this in a more precise way, is having cities still going to be the best way to house the 10 billion people that we will have on the planet sometime this century? And what kinds of influence has the pandemic been having, as it were, on what those settlement patterns will look like in the long term? Yes, absolutely. Cities are still the best way to house 10 billion people, especially as we are trying to address the climate challenge. Dense cities obviously use resources much more productively than dispersed populations. Think of, for example, the per person cost of heating a house in a multifamily building uh, where all the housing units are connected, much less than very separated different individual houses. Or think of the trip to getting groceries from the store to home. In large cities, you can often walk or drive just a very short distance, which is not the case when you're in rural areas. Most cities can do a lot better than, than they are doing today. And the pandemic has provided some of the tools for us for improvement. We have all learned to work at a distance and many folks enjoy the additional time to sleep or exercise when they no longer need to spend all the time in commuting, which of course has much smaller carbon footprint and obviously health benefits to boot. And businesses as well realized how productive employees can be while working from home, but also how much they can save if they need less real estate in some of the most expensive city centers of the world. And as business travel came to halt, the financial and carbon savings did not go unnoticed either. Of course, there are costs when we cut a lot of the face-to-face -face interactions, 
But few firms where workers can work from home are likely to return to exactly where they were before. We expect to see about 20% increase in working from home. So on average, about a one day a week, which is not trivial, as well as a 20% decline in business travel. And this all will help and contribute to some of the positive changes we want to see on the climate front. And of course, going back to your first question, declining business travel will further contribute to the shift in the broader urbanization patterns. Many of the business destination cities are going to see a lasting decline in their inbound business travel. Jana, once again, this is a fascinating answer. And in a way, what's so different about what you're saying is that the climate emergency or the climate challenge has now become the driver for embracing a new kind of urbanization. If you like, cities are the solution for planetary sustainability. And you talked a lot about the congregational power of cities, good density, the ability of people under the conditions of change that the pandemic has brought to be able to make better decisions about where they live, how they work, when they travel. And you foresee uh, savings coming from this as not just financial savings for businesses, but also carbon savings for the planet overall. So, Jana, are you feeling optimistic about the post-pandemic city? I am optimistic by nature, and I am definitely hopeful, given some of the changes we are seeing in many of the cities. And I think the impressions on many people's minds on how they would like the world to look like after the pandemic will hopefully help us move to the right direction. Very good. Thank you, Jana. Now, Farnham, if I turn to you, 10 billion people living in something like 10,000 cities and large towns will need a huge investment over the next 50 years in infrastructure, utilities, facilities, amenities and services. Let me ask you the most direct question. Is the money really available to do that? You're absolutely right, Greg. The investments that are needed to build cities that are accessible, that enable their populations to thrive, that are sustainable, are really significant investments. The World Bank estimates that 93 trillion of sustainable infrastructure investments are needed globally by 2030, which is a massive need. It's clear that the funds available through national revenue sources is not going to be sufficient. We need to look at new sources of financing through private instruments and partnerships. The good news is that we're seeing much greater appetite from capital markets to get involved. We continue to see significant inflows into sustainable investment funds. Morningstar estimated that by the end of last year, nearly $4 trillion of assets under management had some kind of sustainable mandate. And to me, there's a clear affiliation between the capital that is looking to align to the UN Sustainable Development Goals, the capital that is looking to enable the climate solutions that are needed for net zero, the capital that is looking for positive environmental and social impact. There's a clear affiliation between that capital and the investments that enable access to services and basic infrastructure and allow cities' populations to thrive. So I think the money is available. It's just going to require some creativity to connect the dots and ensure that the projects that need it can access it. Farnham, thank you very much. I hope we'll hear more about this creativity shortly. But I think you've said very clearly that the need is clear. It's already being estimated. The quantum of the capital required is huge. But the good news is that the appetite of the capital markets is great. And I believe you said very clearly that the capital is now being increasingly aligned with the goals of sustainable development. 
So it's simply a question of matching the capital with the opportunity, which I'm sure we'll come back to. But just before we do that, please, can we answer the question about the rise of sustainable finance? We hear this phrase a lot. How is sustainable finance different to any other kind of finance? Indeed, what makes it sustainable? So at its most basic, sustainable finance is finance that integrates environmental and social considerations. And over the course of the past decade, the most significant part of the market has been the growth in labeled products uh, across capital markets, green bonds, green loans. These labeled products, I think, generally can fall into two buckets, either use of proceeds or sustainability linked. So use of proceeds, for instance, are instruments where the proceeds are earmarked towards projects with environmental or social attributes. So you can, for instance, think about a loan that is allocated or earmarked towards investments in electric vehicle chargers or into a transit system, something that has a clear environmental impact that can be quantified and reported on. The other bucket of instruments are sustainability-linked instruments. And here, it's the attributes of the instrument itself that make it a sustainable finance instrument. There's some sort of key performance indicator that is built into the instrument that will either penalize or incentivize the issuer depending on whether or not they meet that key performance indicator. So for instance, the most common are instruments where the issuer embeds their GHG reduction target into the instrument. And if they fail to meet that target, they might see a pricing penalty. And if they meet that target or exceed that target, they might see some kind of incentive. Last year, we saw nearly a trillion of issuance across bonds and loans that had some kind of sustainability attribute, either use of proceeds or sustainability linked. So it's a pretty impressive growth over the course of the past few years. You know, if you think about it, we started this market over a decade ago. And since 2018, when you were looking at about 100 million in green bond issuance, we're now at over a trillion across capital markets. And, but I think that the market is actually much larger than just the labeled product market. Sustainability considerations are now permeating every part of capital markets. I see the growth of sustainable finance as something much larger than just labeled instruments. We're seeing sustainability considerations across infrastructure investments in M&A and IPO conversations. So it's that integration of environmental and social factors that permeate across capital markets that we should really think about when we think about sustainable finance. Farnham, this is really very helpful. And I think I've taken three things from what you've said. Firstly, that sustainable finance is the right form of finance to support sustainable cities or, or urban infrastructure. Secondly, that this incentivization and penalization effect seems to me to be very strong, that if a borrower receives sustainable finance but doesn't deliver the environmental outcomes they've promised, they'll end up paying more. And if they do deliver the environmental outcomes they've promised or do better, they'll end up paying less for their money, if I've understood correctly. And then thirdly, of course, this kind of finance is growing so that it's not just about green bonds. It's also the application of sustainable finance to many other kinds of investments, supply chains, M&As, IPOs, and so much more. Um, did I get that about right, Farnham? You're absolutely right, Greg. So can I ask you just to say a word or two more about the creativity you spoke of before? What is the creativity that's required to match this new motivated capital with this global imperative for sustainability in our cities? 
So I use the word creativity because I think often many of the elements are there, but we need to see them put together in new ways. So for instance, there's a lot of data collection and reporting that goes on in cities. We're also seeing cities take the lead from a policy perspective in terms of cities signing up to net zero pledges and starting to reorientate policy to achieve that. How do you leverage those instruments um, and those elements in a way that addresses the interests and needs of capital markets? One great example is what we've seen from cities like Paris and Gothenburg, who have taken to issuing debt in sustainable format. They've developed sustainable finance frameworks where they outline for investors the kind of projects they're carrying out and commit to annual reporting on the impacts of those projects. And in doing so, they're able to reach out to a much broader group of investors, investors that are looking for sustainable projects and a broader you know, order book than they would with a conventional issuance. And I think that's just the beginning. You know, if I add to those elements of policy and data collection and, and investor appetite, the exciting developments in technology where we're seeing a lot more by way of immediate data collection, then there's huge potential in terms of what that might mean in terms of being able to develop and deliver real impact metrics to investors. And I think that's really exciting. So this is fascinating the way this is emerging and growing. And let me turn, if I may, to Jana now and say, given what Farnham has said, the search for sustainable cities has been in train for some time. And indeed, Jana, you, you've written a lot about that in the past. And we now think of the net zero city as a kind of key agenda. What does this transition involve as you see it, Jana? Cities are at the front line of the climate risk. More than 90% of all urban areas are coastal. By 2050, more than 800 million urban residents could be affected by sea level rise and coastal flooding, and 1.6 billion people could be vulnerable to chronic extreme heat, 650 million could face water scarcity. So it's absolutely no surprise that climate, addressing it, adapting to it, is at the center of many cities' agendas. Yet, while we are seeing increasing net zero commitments from cities, companies, from countries, from many, many organizations, Sadly, detailed plans on how to get there are much rarer. The reason is that getting to net zero is hard. It requires uh, not just the finance that Farnham has been talking about, which is critically important and a major barrier. My colleagues at the McKinsey Global Institute estimate that we would need 275 trillion in cumulative investment over the next three decades to get to a net zero scenario by 2050. But that is only part of it. That investment will come in massive changes in our physical, economic, social, and political environment. It will take time, not just money, to get there. Um, and I think especially as we are thinking about how unequal the climate impact will be, making sure that we address the challenges of some of the most vulnerable population um, is key. No city can do it alone. This is a collective challenge. So... I don't have the answer to you. Um, I think the only thing I can say is that with the climate challenge ahead, we really cannot start talking about new normal after the pandemic, for example, unless your definition of new normal is a constancy of change. Thank you, Jana. Actually, this is a very clear answer. $275 trillion by 2050, massive risks in terms of water, heat, health, drought the net zero city emerging as an organizing idea to bring all of this together, and the requirement, as you said very clearly, 
to help the most vulnerable people. It seems to me, though, that we might ask just a little more about this, Jana. Is it the case that the big changes are going to be in the built environment, transport, utilities, those kinds of things, the things that, as it were, make up both the resilience of the city and at the same time are the big users of carbon or the big emitters of, of carbon emissions? Is, is it right to focus in those sorts of areas? Absolutely. It is land. It is the industrial systems. It is transportation. All of those are the big contributors, but they are not the only ones that are going to see the change. It is going to impact households, individuals as well. So it is probably the most comprehensive change that we have seen in a long time. But I think we have a pretty clear urgency and mandate to get it right. And Farnham, is there anything that you would add to that in terms of what the transition will involve at the city level? Yeah, absolutely. So so as Jana was speaking, I was reflecting on the need for partnerships. You know, you have these shared objectives and goals um, alongside the you know, net zero goals and, and changes that we're seeing in cities. You also have corporates that are setting net zero targets and you have development agencies and banks that are looking to support net zero to bring these parties together and find solutions that can address differences in risk appetite and return and structure the different instruments that are needed, I think there's a real need for partnership. Absolutely right. Great. So a strong consensus that partnership between cities and capital, between public and private, I guess between local and global, is going to be important as well. So let me ask each of you one final question, if I may. Jana, as we think about this post-pandemic world that we begin to anticipate, um, do you believe that cities can emerge stronger? Can they be stronger economically, socially and environmentally? Can they bring these things together? Yes, absolutely. The pandemic forced cities to make changes, and many of them used that opportunity to advance their long-term agendas and get some hard things done that were harder to do in earlier times. And this was especially the case in the regions where you had the stimulus support available for new investments and change, especially related to green investments, for example. So some cities advanced their green agenda and climate commitments by uh, reducing car lanes and opening up more space for pedestrians and bicyclers perhaps closing streets completely and creating outdoor dining and other um, recreational areas for their citizens. Others focused on caring for the most vulnerable and prioritized housing and health care for those who lacked both. And many improved the care of older citizens that were especially hard hit with the health risks from the pandemic. And yet others focused on rethinking their economic development, supporting the small and medium-sized enterprises that were very hard hit by the lockdown policies and others reimagined the role of commute hubs and city centers that were left empty without the commuters. So just like the pandemic has forced most of us to take a pause and reflect on how our lives are now and how they should be and will be different afterwards, for cities, this is also a moment and opportunity to renew and reshape themselves. Thank you so much, Jana. It's such a thoughtful answer because what I really hear you saying is that the pandemic when we look back at it historically, despite the loss of life and the trauma that goes with that, the pandemic may prove to have been a great catalyst or accelerator of reforms and changes that were needed anyway. Is that right? 
very much right. The silver lining to a very sad era. Thank you. And Farnham, a final question for you. Can you give us some examples of how this new agenda of sustainable investment and sustainable finance can be applied or is being applied to cities already as they begin to pursue this post-pandemic agenda that Yana has described? Absolutely. So as I mentioned, I think we've seen some great examples of cities um, issuing uh, debt in sustainable format. Um, the city of Paris, I mentioned, that has issued um, sustainable bonds most recently, 100 million euros at the end of November last year, where funds were allocated towards um, projects around transportation, including the new Paris tramway and renewable energy and lowering energy consumption across the city. Um, one other really exciting development that we're now seeing is cities issuing in sustainability linked format. So last year we saw the city of um, Helgenberg issue in sustainable finance format where um, they issued 500 million kroners um, in a sustainability linked bond where the return on the bond was linked to its targets to meet net zero by 2035. So it's really interesting to see, you know, cities increasingly using green social sustainability linked bonds as part of their financing toolkits. We've also seen um, some great examples of, of partnerships, particularly, um, you know, facilitated by the C40 Innovative Finance Facility, which I think is a really interesting project because it works with cities to facilitate access to finance for uh, climate change mitigation and resilience projects, but is really working to help them build out the business case for those projects, um, which is an important element that doesn't often get the attention it needs in terms of financing. Farnham, thank you very much. And what I can hear from what you've said very clearly is that there is direct lending happening to cities that's enabling them to make these changes. But there are also new global platforms emerging, like the C40 and indeed others, that are forging the partnerships that you spoke of before. Well. I think we could discuss this topic of the future of cities post-pandemic and the net zero challenge, the rise of sustainable finance and investing, and the opportunity to bring these two great agendas together to create a world which is not just continuing its journey of urbanization, but is actually reforming and improving what cities look like. Thank you both very much for such a fascinating discussion and for joining us today on the Financing Future Cities podcast. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning into this episode of Financing Future Cities. If you enjoyed this discussion, then listen to the full series as we take a deep dive into key topics on the urban decarbonization journey of cities and their ecosystems. If you're interested in learning more about how HSBC can support you in your transition to net zero, visit the link in the episode description. Thank you for joining us for HSBC Talks Business. To learn more about anything you heard today, please visit business.hsbc.com. Thank you.